Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World, and this week we've got one very surprised marathon winner in the kick. Then our food and nutrition editor, Heather Mayer-Irvin, talks with Olympic marathoner Shalane Flanagan about her new book, Run Fast, Eat Slow. Shalane and her co-author, Elise Kopecki, talk about disordered eating, the joys of butter, and what exactly they mean by eat slow. But first, my conversation with the mayor of running, Bart Yasso. Bart and I talk about his 40 years as a runner, his 29 years working here at Runner's World, his hard-won training tips, and how much has changed in the sport during the past five decades. And we were considered kind of weirdos doing a long run on a Sunday by yourself, running 20 miles on a country road, to what goes on today with these massive groups. It's, it's incredible to look back. Thanks for joining us. As regular readers surely know by now, 2016 marks the 50th anniversary of Runner's World. We've been celebrating that milestone in lots of ways across the magazine, on our website, and here on the podcast. There's a pretty short list of people who are most qualified to talk about the changes our sport has undergone over the past five decades. And one of them is our own Bart Yasso. Bart is the chief running officer here at Runner's World. Yes, that's an actual job title. And in that role, he has run in every state on every continent and in more than 150 marathons. He's done more than that, trust me, but he stopped counting a long time ago. Bart is also the author of the memoir, My Life on the Run. He's personally trained thousands of runners over the years, and he travels more than 40 weekends a year to races across the country and around the world. During a rare lull in his schedule, Bart and I sat down to talk about what he thinks are the seminal moments in running over the past 50 years. I asked him to share some of his hard-won wisdom and to give us a short list of his very best training advice. And we end our conversation talking about the one race that nearly got away from him, the epic event that eventually became the highlight of his epic running career. So, Bart, thanks for coming down to the studio to spend a little time with us to talk about running and uh, oh, yeah. the past 50 years from your unique point of view. It's a joy to be here. This is really cool to have in our Runner's World office. So let's start with a, a quick look back, 50 years. Yeah. How many of those years have you spent here at Runner's World? Yeah, so it's almost 29 years at Runner's World, and I've been running continuously for 40 years. And uh, just watch this sport explode from something that was really small. And we were considered kind of weirdos doing a long run on a Sunday uh, by yourself, running 20 miles on a country road, to what goes on today with these massive groups. It's it's incredible to look back and see. and physically see these changes. It's it's unbelievable. I'm sure there are so many things that you look back and would never have anticipated when you started running 40 years ago. Are there one or two or three that really stand out to you as being the most significant or, or the most important for whatever reason? Sure. Well, number one would be the women in our sport. I mean, no one realized that 
Uh, you know, we always encourage women. When I started, there were a handful of women at races that I would do, literally a handful. Yeah. And we've always, you know, every all the other male runners, we encouraged other women to try it. We encouraged women to do it, but it wasn't happening. And man, when it exploded, when women started gravitating to the sport, and then women started sharing their experience, that's when it took off. And to think now, to go to some half marathons where there's 60% women. Right. It, no one could have predicted that. I mean, we all knew, I think, that women would embrace the sport a little bit more, but never at the level they do now. And that, by far, is the biggest change I physically witnessed. When I started, that Catherine Switzer, she was the one out there, and everyone knew about her, and there was all this talk about getting women the women's marathon in the Olympics. And sure enough, in 84, it happened. And, you know, that opened the floodgates. And, of course... Joni winning it, Olympic gold medalist, the first ever women's marathon in 1984 in Los Angeles. You know, millions and millions of people watching this. An American comes in and wins the gold medal in the marathon. Wow, that was it. That's when it really took off. And, uh, you know, she won the Boston Marathon twice prior to that. So you'd think winning Boston would do it, but I, I think when she did it at the Olympics, it just hit an audience that, would, wasn't paying attention to the Boston Marathon. Yeah. And that's where I think this broad audience of women came into our sport. And then races had to knock down the walls of intimidation. I think women were intimidated at first because there was only a small percentage of women doing a race. But people like Joni and Catherine constantly pushing uh, for women to be included in everything. Title IX would have played a role. Right. I think it was a, you know, a wave of a bunch of things that just crested and Man, it it hasn't stopped Oprah since that probably day. in the mix there, right? Oprah in the mid in the early nineties, yeah. You know, she Oprah again. She hit that crowd that we normally wouldn't have hit. That wouldn't just pick up Runner's World right away or pay attention to the Boston Marathon. But they watched Oprah. And she ran a marathon, and she ran every step of the way, and took it very seriously, and ran a pretty good time. Four hours and 29 minutes at the 1994 Marine Corps Marathon. And uh, that really proved to a lot of people that if Oprah can do it, I can do it kind yeah. of mentality. And it was a, another, what I would call, a epicenter of this women's movement that they just gravitated to this sport. But the bottom line is they felt welcomed and they loved it. And that's what keeps it going. Can you remember a, a race that you ran in when maybe it was the first time you recognized that there are women also running in the race or at least an early one and, and sure. what that was like? I do remember my first marathon, which would have been 36 years ago, and there was one woman in front of me. And it was interesting, the pack of guys I was running with, you know, we'd hit this turnaround and we'd see this woman ahead of us. And a lot of us were like, that is awesome. Look at this girl. She's killing us. And then there were guys like... I'm not going to get beat by a woman, right. you know, so they were going to try to kill themselves to keep up with her. But that, they couldn't do it. She beat me, and she beat the guys I was running with. But it was so, I mean, it was one woman. It was yeah. so unusual. But I just remember that, that uh, the way people reacted. You know, I thought it was awesome that a woman was beating, beating us, but some other guys were intimidated by it. Yeah. And that's what I think, that's where the sport started to change to have more my mindset than their mindset to, uh, you know, it's not a bad thing to get beat by these women. They're running fast and they're great runners. 
By any chance, did you talk to her afterward or meet her or I did meet her. You know, she was a very interesting person. I didn't know it at the time, but she was actually a Special Olympian, Loretta Claiborne. Hmm. And she actually became famous in a documentary about her life. And uh, she was a very talented runner. But, uh, you know, it was the mental disabilities that she suffered from that, uh, you know, she competed in a Special Olympics. And she was pretty good. I think that... I think she ran 307 or 305 at the marathon that she won, so it was uh, impressive to see her run, and I had no idea who she was, but I did find out afterwards. What race was that? You said it was your first marathon? It was the Prevention Marathon in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, sponsored by Prevention Magazine, which is one of our sister magazines here at Rodale. So another woman who I know is a close friend of yours who also is a pioneer in, in other ways, and... Uh, personifies a, a type of athlete and runner that you probably were not seeing a whole lot of out on the roads or in races 40 years ago, Sarah Reinertsen. Yeah, Sarah's unbelievable. Sarah's a dear friend and, of course, a hero of running in Runner's World, one of our first heroes That's in right. running and a, on the cover of Runner's World. So Sarah Reinertsen is above-the-knee amputee and the first woman to finish the Hawaii Ironman on a prosthetic leg. But yeah, you know what I love about Sarah is she inspires everyone from two years old to 102 years old. She just goes out and does what she loves to do, which is run and ride her bike and swim. And everyone's inspired by her and everyone wants to be around her. She's very magnetic. That personality that she has, just it just resonates with everybody. And uh, very few people are like that. Yeah, and when we did that story on Sarah and put her on the cover in 2004, it was fairly unique for an amputee to run a marathon or do an Ironman triathlon as she did back then. It's, it, in a positive way, way more commonplace now. Well, I think part of it is people like Sarah being out there. Someone had to set the bar, and she talks about the woman who she saw to run a race on a prosthetic leg. That inspired her, and they just keep passing it on. But the technology also has a lot to do with it. You know, you get fit with a prosthetic leg right. that's built for running or built for cycling. Uh, it, it's come a long way. All right. So technology, good good segue yeah. into maybe another thing that stands out to you looking back on the past five decades, big changes, seminal moments. There's got to be something related to, to gear, to gear oh, shoes, definitely. the gadgets. Yeah. <laughs> We thought we were the bomb if we had a $9.99 Casio watch. Like, if you saw a runner go by and they had running shoes on and a Casio $10 watch and the chrono going while they were out there running, we were the coolest things out there. And now today it's unbelievable what goes on. Uh, but that's all. that was the technology. And uh, you know, Plastic a, or steel? Oh, it or? was – those things were just – I don't even know. They were just so tiny, but I remember you could get your splits and stuff. We were, like, enamored by these things. We thought it was the coolest thing ever. But that was like that was like the stamp of approval. You got Runner's World at your home. You had a Casio watch, and you were a committed runner. There's no doubt about it. This, this was your sport. And, of course, today, you know, all the technology is unbelievable. Shoes have improved tremendously. I mean, uh, not only the quality... Uh, but the type of shoes and and the actually the choices you have, that was not around in the old days. I mean, in the old days, we knew when someone ran by, we knew the shoe they were wearing. You could pick it out by the color and you knew right away because there weren't that many 
brand, and there weren't that many different styles in each brand. Yeah. So it was easy to know what somebody was running in. I can't keep up with it today. There's so many brands and so many different styles and shoes. and uh, But it was real easy in the old days. And I always remember the quote that George Hirsch always used to say. And, of course, George was a publisher at Runner's World many years. Yeah. And he was jealous of the shoes we were wearing in the 70s because he said, oh, you got all this new technology. They're so much better because he said when uh, – when he used to run in the 40s and 50s in the running shoes, he said when you stepped on a dime, you knew if it was heads or tails. <laughs> you could feel the difference on the bottom of your shoe. Okay, I would like your assessment, <laughs> sir, please, of the pros and cons of short shorts versus the longer shorts. I've seen photos oh. of you in both. I've run with you. I, you know, I, I think I've only run with you and you've been wearing sort of more modern long shorts, but I certainly yeah. have seen photos of you in some high-split shorties. <laughs> yeah. Which ones I'm are a better? Big, I'm a big fan of the long running shorts. <laughs> Honest to God, I look back at those pictures in the 70s, and I can't believe I went out of my house dressed like that. But I guess you did because that was the run clothes of the time. So another thing that's been jumping out at us this year is we've been working on our 50th anniversary stories in the magazine and things we're doing on the website. Uh, how much n- nutrition and and the thoughts about hydration have have changed. What's your point of view on all of that stuff? You know, I remember when the power bar came along, the first energy bar, and then, of course, that whole everything exploded after that. And now you got goos and gels and blocks. and uh, But the nutrition, you know, and staying hydrated, we didn't do that in the old days, and I think it really hurt us. All right, wasn't the... W- conventional wisdom of the day that you shouldn't drink water oh, when you were they, doing long runs? Yeah, they marathons. told us we were weak if we drank water. I mean, I remember being at the start of the Boston Marathon, whatever, 34 years ago, and they were passing out salt tablets and said, take these and don't drink any water. I'm like, okay, this guy's, you know, run the race 10 times. He must know what he's talking about. I glommed on anything I thought would help me. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, and I believe that first that first year I did it, there were two or three aid stations on the course. The race bragged about, you know, how they were spoiling us, putting water out at three spots along the way. And, of course, a little different today. We learned a lot about hydration over the years. And now I carry a water bottle on probably 90% of my runs. Yeah. So what were you eating in, at the peak of your running days? And what was, like, your your typical uh, diet, especially yeah, before a I, big race? I remember eating a lot of pizza. We ate pizza all the time. And then, of course, the traditional spaghetti, you know, pasta feed, that was the big deal. Mounds and, and mounds but, of pasta. Yeah, but, but I remember those first, I would say, first 15 marathons I did from, like, 1980 to 1984. We really did this protein and then pasta, you know. Cut the carbs out, do a lot of protein, then stop the protein and do the carbs. And I don't know if it worked, but <laughs> everyone was doing it, so... Huh. If Ambry Burfoot does it, I better do it. You know, that's that was the mentality back right. then. Uh, if Joni does it, I better do it. So you talked about Boston, and you, what was the first year? What, what was your first Boston? What du- year was Duel that? in the Sun, 1982. 82, right. Beardsley and Salazar, you know, I can remember it like yesterday. It was so different. I mean, there were people that registered the day before the race. There were people that picked up their bib numbers at the starting line. You know, if you were an elite runner— you got your bib number at the starting line. Jock Sample just went around and, yeah. oh, number two, Beardsley, you take number two. So, you know, they just handed them out at the start. Right. Now, us other runners that uh, 
that qualified to get in there. Back then, you had to run a 250 to qualify. We, you know, we were uh, we had to go pick up our numbers at the expo. But the elites were actually handed their numbers right at the starting line. So different than today. And I, the the the, the memories I have, the visions in my head when I think of Boston '82 are the people on the side of the road holding a transistor radio, listening to the race on radio, and uh, and then they're listening to who's in the lead, and then they would tell us. Salazar and Beardsley are in the lead, and you know we'd get all excited knowing who was in the lead. And yeah. uh, I remember coming up to around mile 21, and uh, somebody made a big sign: Salazar first place, Dick Beardsley second place, and wrote their times: 208.51, 208.53. I can remember that sign like I painted it. I mean, it was so vivid in my mind, and I was like. That guy made a mistake. They must have run 209 and because at that point, there were never two runners in a marathon run under 209, right. and it was a warm day. And that guy was not right. I mean, he was right. They both ran. They both broke 209, which was such a big deal. And they, when they finished, I still had five and a half miles to go. They were way ahead of me. But I remember when we, uh, in those last three miles, when you come in on Commonwealth Avenue and uh, Hereford Street and... There were no barricades. There were no police. So the crowd thought it would be cool to be out cheering us on. So, I mean, it really was, a, you know, probably five feet wide. That's all the road we had. Right. And It's like running down a crowded hallway. <laughs> exactly. I remember Jack Fultz tells a story that, you know, if you wanted to pass a runner, you had to tap him on the shoulder <laughs> and tell him you're going to scoot by him because there was nowhere to pass. And it wasn't that the crowd were being mean. They were excited to cheer us on, so, but they just kept crouching in and moving in and moving in. When, when I'd come along, if you ran, you know, where I ran around in the 240s, you just ran through this gauntlet. It was like the Tour de France on top of the mountains. You know, there were just people everywhere cheering for you. It was pretty cool. Now yeah. there's barricades and police everywhere. It's a little different. And what did Runner's World mean to you in, in those early days? Where was its place in... You know the the, yeah. the running media, and where was what was its value to the running community? Runners World, I, I mean, it was definitely what we looked for every month. We wanted to see the reports on races and and uh, the lowdown on the latest elite runners on what they're up to. And uh, you know, it was always always fun to read it. I was one of those people when Runners World came. I kicked back. If, you know, I was scheduled to run ten miles. I probably only ran five or six, and then. Spent the rest of the time devouring Runner's World cover to cover. Yeah. And it was fun to do. And then we shared a lot of magazines back then. And, you know, it was just fun to do. So in addition to living through so many of these changes, you've you've learned an enormous amount. <laughs> you've coached hundreds of runners, trained them, brought them into the sport. What are, you know, what's, what's your short list of the best, most timeless pieces of advice yeah. that, that you would give runners? Number one is to think long-term. Think you want to do this sport for life, and that's the way I do my running. Uh, you know, So when I don't run, I actually feel good about it because I saved that day that I'm going to run 10 years from now or 20 <laughs> years from now or maybe even 30 years from now. I put that day away. And uh, you know, back in the real competitive days, you know, we, were, we ran every day and ran hard every day or mostly art every day. But now there is this, uh, you know, that perspective and that mindset to be a runner for life. And to think of that, that's the way you have to train and the way to live your life. And that's, uh, 
I really try to pass that on to people because you want to be doing this for a long time. When I when I do race announcing, when a runner comes in that's 80 years old or 85 years old, the crowd goes wild because that's what we want to be someday. Yeah. One, I want to live that long, and two, I want to be I want to be able to run when I'm that age. Yeah, and uh, so you got to think long term and think of being a runner for life. On training, uh, we did too much mileage back in the day. We all ran 100 plus miles a week. It was just so commonplace back then. All year. All year long. Yeah. There were weeks where I did 115, 120, and weeks where you backed off to 50, 60 miles to recover. But (laughs) it would average out to almost 100 miles a week, and that was just commonplace. Uh, And I don't think runners today look at it that way. I really think you have a little more of a balance. And, uh, and, you know, got to do some higher mileage, especially if you really want to excel in the marathon. But it doesn't have to be 100-plus miles a week. has to be that much at the very elite level. But your average runner, you don't need that kind of mileage. And and you're better off long-term not doing those, those crazy mileage. And then the other part is taking a break every once in a while to just back off, especially after you've run a race. That's the greatest time to just kick back, do some other exercise, cross-train, as you know, I love to do. And, uh, and that keeps you in the game a long time. Most runners come to me for cross-training ideas after they got injured. Mm. And I always say, I want you to come to me and do cross-training so you don't get injured and you won't be coming to me injured because if you just back off on, on a one or two days and use the elliptical, run in deep water, you know, there's so many things you can do. You still get the cardio, but you just don't hurt yourself. And then the, the biggest thing that the, I know it sounds so counterintuitive and that you can't believe it's possible, but if you run slower, you will get faster. And I say that running slower on your recovery days. People just don't don't back off enough on those recovery days. And then when they do a quality workout, whether it's a speed workout or a hill workout or a tempo run, they're not they don't do it as fast as they can if they would have taken it a little bit easier on those recovery days. The pace on the long run, same thing. Uh, runners tend to do the, their long runs too quickly because they think, oh, I, I can't run that slowly. So I can't, I can't tell you how many runners say, how am I going to run a 3.30 marathon, which is exactly eight-minute pace, if I train at nine-minute pace in my long runs? I said, trust me, it works. You're doing the speed work and the other workouts for the turnover. That long run is endurance. That's why you have to do it slower. Otherwise, you're doing your race as your long run, and when you get home, there's nobody that gives you a medal and <laughs> makes a big deal about mm-hmm. you. You're just going home. So save those, save those days for the race. You can finish strong and run a little bit of it at race pace, but it really should be about a minute per mile slower than your goal pace in a marathon. Bart, you've run more than 150 marathons, and I always say you you either lost count or just <laughs> stopped bothering to count after you pass 150. You've won marathons. You've run Badwater. You've had a full life when it comes to, to running races. But I also know that there was one race for a long, long time that, that was a dream of yours to do. Yeah, David, the, the Comrades Marathon in South Africa, that is the race. You know, I, I literally have run all over the world, and I've done races in Antarctica, the Arctic Circle, and, you know, ev- everywhere. It's It's been a fun ride. <laughs> but when I finished the book My Life on the Run, I finished it, did I have a regret? Because I really 
I really thought I had to walk away from running completely. I was fortunate enough that I didn't, but my Lyme disease was really hurting me, especially in 2008. I was in a, a lot of pain. And when I say I was in pain, I was in pain laying in bed. Forget about running. Running wasn't part of the equation at the time. I was pretty sick. But, you know, I got a little bit better in 2009, and uh, that's when this Comrades thing started spinning in my head because it wasn't my only regret. I always wanted to run Comrades, and I never did it. They call it a marathon, but it's actually 56 miles, and it's 56 hilly miles in Mm, South Africa. Very. It's the oldest ultra in the world. It's been run every year since 1921. And it's the largest ultra in the world. Anywhere from 18,000 to 20,000 runners line up to run 56 miles. To put that in perspective, the largest ultra in the United States is the JFK 50-miler, which gets right around 1,000 runners. So you can imagine this is 20 times the size of that. And, uh, you know, the way Amby Burfoot always says it's, it's the field is the size of the Boston Marathon. It's twice as long as the Boston Marathon with an extra four miles at the end of the double the Boston Marathon distance and then and, and but it's it's just got this spear. And the hills dwarf oh, oh, Heartbreak the, Hill in Boston. The hills make Heartbreak Hill look like a treadmill. There's no doubt about it. But you know, it's just it's got this mystique. So I remember reading about comrades back in the early eighties and then I did my first fifty mile race and uh I ran pretty fast. I ran right around six hours, which is like seven twenty per mile for, for 50 miles. And I thought, okay, if I can run 50 miles that fast, I got to get the comrades and try to be, you know, I wouldn't know I wouldn't win it, but I would try to be in like the top 50 of comrades because that kind of time, that kind of pace could put me up there. And uh, so I got all excited about doing it, but I just didn't want to go to South Africa. Mm. You know, I just felt going to South Africa during apartheid years would be like you supported apartheid. So and then we launched Runner's World South Africa in 1993, and apartheid is abolished. And I thought, well, this is my deal. i got to go do Comrades. And uh, I got sick again, and I, I entered Comrades twice, and I never made it to South Africa. I, you know, I was so sick back home, I, it was not it never, not going to happen. So the so, Lyme disease just kept flaring up? Yeah, the two, the two flare-ups I had after my first attack that I had in 91, uh, that both happened as I entered Comrades and got really serious about training. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I just ended up so sick, there was not a chance I could even think about running five miles, let alone 56 miles. I, I really forgot about Comrades. I thought it's never going to happen. But 2009, I started feeling a little bit better. I did the Rocket City Marathon in Huntsville, Alabama on literally no training. And I remember I came in like four and a half hours and I thought, Okay, if I can do this on no training, I got to get serious. I I think I can do comrades, so, and that's where I really got the idea that I could do it. And uh, so I entered it and did it in 2010, which was the year of the World Cup soccer in South Africa. It was a crazy time to be in South Africa. But when I studied comrades and every, everything I read about comrades, you know, I had that awful past during the really tough apartheid years. Mm. They didn't allow any of the black citizens to run comrades. And, uh, you know, and I I just can't imagine that going on. But that's the way it was. And then when they allowed the black athletes to run, and this is before apartheid was abolished, the black athletes started flourishing at comrades. And it was a lot of the white athletes that pushed 
to mm. say we need the black athletes in this race because they said if they if you don't allow the blacks to run we're not going to run and that was the big change so i you know my main goal when i went over there in 2010 was to experience that to see this change to to think back that if i was there 30 years ago there would be no black citizens in this race and to be at that starting line and see all these black Zulu South Africans ready to run sub six minute pace for 56 miles. And they play their national anthem and they're, they're crying, tears running down their cheekbones. And I was standing right there and I was like, I was hyperventilating. I was thought, man, I, I'm never gonna start this race because I can't even breathe. Yeah. I was so physically moved by what I witnessed because I, you know, I knew what it was like 30 years ago. I mean, even though I never physically saw it, I, I heard all the stories and everything you read. And uh, and that's what I love about our sport. If we give people the opportunity, if we allow them to get to the starting line, they will go out and prove what they could do. And that's what I thought about looking at these great South African black runners as they were ready to start this 56-mile journey. And I was not in good shape. I uh, I had a lot of trouble in the training, and figured I could get to the finish line. I didn't know you got to have to beat twelve hours, or they turn you away. So yeah, right. So some listeners may not know this about yeah. comrades. Yeah. So comrades is a serious cutoff, and there's cutoffs along the way. And if you don't hit the time, they just send you away. You you don't have a choice. And then the finish line gets locked down. You cannot finish under uh, over twelve hours. They so literally close a gate. They literally lock the gates to the finish line, and you're you're done. So you didn't want to come finally run comrades after and, a lifetime of wanting to and have the gate closed on you. Yeah, I did not. So I really, I was out there killing myself. And, uh, you know, we co- we did videos out there. Brian Saban, our video guy back then at mm-hmm. Runner's World, was out there. I look back at those videos, and I really looked rough. I was I was hurting pretty badly right from the beginning. I was limping and, and, and what in was a it, bad way. And what was it specifically, Bart, that was, well, Just where was the, the pain? Just the joint pain and sw- the swelling in my legs uh it was you know i just i just couldn't run i just couldn't have a fluid stride and I, every time my foot touched the ground it hurt so your knees and your hips ankles knees yeah. hips you know, it just radiates through your body it's not it's not a fun thing but i was convinced that i had to finish this race and uh you know i look back at those videos and i think god if i was on the side of the road and saw myself coming down the road you know i would say to the guy hey buddy it's not worth it i can see you're in pain and we're only five miles in the race you still got 51 miles to go but you never know why people are doing what they're doing and i was it meant a lot to me to finish that race uh and i got there i got there with only 27 minutes to spare but i got to cross that line and uh you know, I engaged with the South African people throughout the race, and it's just magical. I've never had that in any other race. I mean, it's like it's like London, Boston, and New York all in one on the 4th of July or Christmas Day. I mean, it's hard to explain. And I thought a lot about uh, my, my older brother, George, who at that point had passed away. He loved South Africa, and he'd never been there. He was a rugby player. And he always followed rugby in South Africa, and he always wanted to go to Johannesburg and compete because he did compete uh, internationally in rugby. But he never had the chance to get to South Africa, and then he got sick, and his dream was gone. So I thought a lot about my brother when I was out there, and that, you know, I just, I knew I could get to that finish line before 12 hours. I was pretty beat up, and I, I couldn't run for, after I finished, it took me over two and a half months till I 
ran my first step. Yeah. It took that much out of me, but but it was worth it. Were there moments when you thought about stopping? I never actually thought about stopping, but there was there was a moment when I was worried at halfway because at halfway, you know, I got to halfway and there was all this excitement and a big banner and you're halfway and the guy on the microphone says, eh, people, you're only 20 minutes before the cutoff. I'd pick it up if I was you. And I thought, oh, my God. I was running as hard as I could. And I was only 20 minutes ahead of the cutoff at halfway. I thought, this is not good. I really thought that uh, maybe I won't make it. But but I realized, you know, I just had a, I always kept moving forward, always forward momentum. If I couldn't run, I walked. If I, you know, I, you just have to keep moving. And uh, the people from South Africa really carry you on and get you to that finish line. And that's how, that's what Comrades is like. I mean, you can imagine people that live in the poorest neighborhoods, people that live in these townships without electricity. They walk down the street and they find a TV and hundreds of people gather around and they watch Comrades. These poor kids that literally have no money, barely clothing on their back, and no food to eat. And they pay attention to comrades. Yeah. So after I finished, with 27 minutes to spare, 3,400 runners crossed the finish line in the last 27 minutes. And, uh, you know, the crowd just goes wild. You just got to finish that race. It's, it's unbelievable. And then there's the unfortunate people that don't make it. And then they become sort of famous because, <laughs> you know, they don't make it to that finish, but they get right to the 56-mile mark. And uh, it's heartbreaking because they've run 56 miles and they don't get a medal and they don't get in the finished result. And, oh, God, it's tough to see. Isn't the first non-official finisher, doesn't doesn't that <laughs> runner become sort of a celebrity at, yeah. after the race, the person yeah, who, what, like, has the gate <laughs> slammed in his or her face? Yeah, what they say is that the first person who doesn't finish where the finish line is officially closed and the clock goes 12 hours after Nelson Mandela, they're the second most famous person in South Africa, if you can imagine that. There is Nelson Mandela and then the, the finisher who, the first finisher who doesn't finish. I call them a finisher because they ran the whole race, but by comrades' rules, they're not considered a finisher, but they, it's brutal. But they really become that famous because they're interviewed by everyone. And the, and the race is covered on all South African TV, TV stations, so there's nothing like it. So when we did this story, we presented it as your last race. Yep. It wasn't your last race. Uh, what changed? Yeah, you know, I really thought it was my last race, and I thought I really physically have to stop doing this and just run my few miles, listen to my body, and be happy. But it, it's so hard. I, the, the running community, I go to these races <laughs> and just engage with these people and just watch people overcome so many obstacles just to get to the starting line you know when people come up to you and say oh i used to weigh 450 pounds and now i'm you know going to try to break three hours in the marathon i'm like you just can't believe this stuff and people come up to me and say well you know i get my chemo on friday because saturday i throw up a lot and then sunday i feel pretty good that i can finish the marathon and you're like these people are being actively treated for cancer and are out there running marathons. And I thought, why am I not out there? You know, I know I have some physical problems, but it's it's the running community it just drives me on and inspires me, and I, I just want to be part of it. I don't care if I'm way in the back. I just go out there and enjoy it. And, you know, today I'm out there taking selfies with people. It's so much fun. I just can't believe how 
many people overcome so many obstacles and they just go out there and, and they do it. So I thought I got to be one of these people. That was Chief Running Officer Bart Yasso. For my full conversation with Bart, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Shalane Flanagan has been super busy. In August, she ran the Olympic Marathon in Rio, finishing sixth in two hours, 25 minutes. Right around the same time, she also published her first book, a cookbook called Run Fast, Eat Slow, Nourishing Recipes for Athletes. Shalane co-authored the book with her friend and former University of North Carolina teammate, Elise Kopecki. Elise ran cross-country in college, and today she's a chef, a writer, a runner, and a nutrition coach based in Bend, Oregon. A few days before the Boston Marathon in April, our food and nutrition editor, Heather Mayer Irvin, talked with both Shalane and Elise about where the idea for the book came from, how Elise's experience with athletic amenorrhea, which is the absence of menstrual periods typically brought on by excessive exercise, helped inspire a career change. And they talked about their new respect for healthy fats, the kinds that they think we should be eating more of. Shalane was not running the Boston Marathon this year because she was preparing for Rio, but Heather Mayer Irvin was running Boston. And after their talk, the trio whip up one of Shalane's favorite pre-run drinks, the Can't Beat Me Smoothie. Um, so we're here to talk Run Fast, Eat Slow, your new joint cookbook. Um, so Elise, can you tell us a little bit how Run Fast, Eat Slow came to be? I know it's been a project for quite a while now. Yeah, when by the time the book comes out, it'll have been three years since Shalane and I started talking about writing this book together. Um, we, I had just moved back um, from Switzerland and Shalane was back in Portland after many adventures abroad. And um, we got together. We reunited after not not having seen each other for a couple of years um, for dinner at her house. And over a home-cooked meal at Shalane's house, we just started talking. I was fresh out of um, studying culinary nutrition. And we just that night started talking about um, how much misinformation is out there that's pushed at athletes, in particular female runners, and how many fad diets are out there and um, – a lot of these diets cause more harm than good. And we start, I started telling Shalane about what I had learned from studying nutrition and from my own experiences and how much it helped my running and my health and happiness. And it was all about eating real food and indulgent food and that um, butter is actually healthy for you. And all these foods with good fats are so essential for performance and for long-term health. And we just got so fired up that night that at the end of the night, we're like, we should write a cookbook. So it sounds like the premise really is real food, real cooking. Um, and Shalane, what do you mean by eat slow? We know what run fast means. So what does eat slow mean? Yeah, I think that the eat slow has um, kind of a deeper layer than just eating literally slow. Um, it means taking the time to feed yourself and your family and your friends and indulge in real food and home-cooked meals. It's trying to reinforce like getting back in the kitchen and cooking for yourself. There's all these convenience packaged foods out there and that's that's convenient and nice sometimes, but it's really important to get in your own kitchen and sit down and enjoy a meal with your friends and family. The book gets into a little bit of some heavy stuff for a cookbook, um, specifically with athletic amenorrhea. And so, Elise, can you talk a little bit about that and why you decided to put that in the cookbook? Part of the inspiration for me to change my career, I was in marketing for nearly 10 years working for Nike Running. 
um, was I suffered. I ran um, competitively in college. Um, Shalane and I go back 16 years. We were college roommates and teammates. And through high school and college, I suffered from athletic amenorrhea. Um, I had doctors tell me many times that I would have trouble having a baby someday. And no doctor ever suggested that I change my diet. I, they put me on um, birth control pills and not, n- nothing ever came up about needing to get more fat into my diet. Um, I ate the standard American diet, a lot of low-fat products. Um, and it wasn't until years later that my husband and I moved to Switzerland and my diet drastically changed to um, over there. It's all whole milk yogurt and butter and cheeses and really good fats in your diet. Um, and within a couple months of living in Switzerland, for the first time in my life, I um, overcame athletic amenorrhea and um, got my period naturally. And when we moved back to the U.S., uh, got pregnant super fast, faster than we had expected. Um, so that really inspired me to want to learn more and to to give up my marketing career for the chance to study at the Natural Gourmet Institute and learn more about culinary nut- nutrition and the importance of, of fats um, in the diet of athletes. And how old is your little one now? She's 21 months and um, not quite two, but acts like she's three. So a lot of athletes, as you mentioned, you know, especially females, they've got a difficult relationship with food. We see it in elite sports quite a bit. Shalane, what advice do you have for young women runners, elite or otherwise, um, when it comes to food and kind of that tough thinking and that, that balance between athleticism and nutrition? Yeah, the beauty of what Elise taught me, um, I think I, I had some of the same struggles that a lot of female athletes have and like body image. And, you know, I'm supposed to be the epitome of like elite athleticism and be lean and mean and powerful. And I think all young runners strive to have this certain look and to be able to compete at a really high level. And I think there's a lot of disordered eating out there. And I think that was a huge inspiration to us. You know, a lot of women suffer from athletic amenorrhea, especially like in college, Elise and I um, witnessed a lot of women struggling with it and struggling with their relationship with food. And uh, the way Elise taught me to approach how to eat um, allowed me to kind of take this burden that I felt with food. I felt like it was a little too consuming. And I felt like she taught me how to just indulge in real food. And I actually felt like a weight lifted in the sense that I didn't have to count calories. I didn't have to worry so much about my diet because I was eating real food and it was tasting good and I felt full. Like that's a big misconception. You know, you feel like you're eating all these low fat things and it's good for you, but you end up feeling kind of empty. You don't feel full and satiated. And so the way Elise taught me how to cook and get in the kitchen for myself and it's been probably one of the greatest enhancements in my career. Um, you don't have to struggle with the numbers of calories and everything. That's not what we're about. We're about just eating real food. And you're going to find that by doing that, you're going to enjoy what you're doing a lot more. Now, you mentioned that Elise kind of helped you with that mentality in the kitchen and getting you cooking and using real ingredients. And was it really this, um, I have to count everything, everything is so precise. What was, I guess, your kitchen story that has brought you to where you are now? Yeah, I think I feared the fats like most Americans and most women. And like I said, it's just, it's not as satiating. It's not as filling. And I learned from Elise that I'm actually depriving myself of a lot of nutrients because the fat is a carrier of nutrition. It can carry it to your body and and make you a healthier person. So um, I just felt like it was another tool in my my belt of like, you know, trying to compete and just um, alleviate a lot of stress that I was carrying around. Um, So yeah, by getting in the kitchen and learning how to cook for myself is... It's a great tool to have. That's, that's great. Um, Elise, what do you want your readers and, and new cooks to take away from Run Fast, Eat Slow? 
I think the biggest thing we want people to take away is the best way to improve your um, performance as a runner and also for long-term health and happiness is to learn to cook. So just um, anything homemade you can make is going to be far more nourishing than something out of a package. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's not even just runners. It's anyone who wants to just enhance their their physical well-being. And, you know, it can be far-reaching to triathletes, swimmers. It, it applies to everyone. It's uh, There's a lot of, of nuggets of gold in our book. And I think what's great is our recipes aren't super complicated. If I can do it, then I feel like a lot of people, I didn't go to school for cooking. Um, and the recipes are, are really approachable. It's not this long list of ingredients. And I think a lot of people get intimidated because they look at the recipe and they're like, oh my gosh, the, you know, there's like 20 ingredients. I don't want to have to go get 20 ingredients. And so we really focus on trying to make it approachable for college um college students for you know high school kids and um so I think that's what's going to be the fun part is to see how many people it reaches and actually uh here at runner's world we have an eat like an elite column which Shalane I think you were in one year and um that's kind of what this is we can actually eat like elites um interviewing elite athletes on what's the best to eat sometimes the worst thing you can do (laughs) because they have uh, elite runners are notorious for having some of the worst diets um and I think that sometimes the mentality amongst runners is because I'm burning so many calories, I can eat anything I want. But really, it's not about calories. It's not about grams of fat. It's not about protein. It's about the nutrient quality and the um, nutrient density of the food you're eating. And it's having the mindset like all that matters is looking at the package and seeing how many calories it has is – doesn't tell the full picture. It doesn't tell you the vitamins and minerals and antioxidants in the food. And the only thing that can give you what you need as an athlete to um, build lean muscle and fight inflammation is real food. Um, in the the famous novel Once a Runner, you know they say if the furnace is hot enough, anything will burn, including Big Macs. And uh, we're we're learning that it does kind of matter what you put into your body. Um, so, Shalane, what's your favorite indulgence? Um, well, my post-race celebration is always a burger and a beer. So we, we have a bison burger that, um, to me is somewhat like inspired by the fact that I crave good, um, meat and I train a lot at high altitude. So I crave the red meats and, uh, nothing like a good juicy burger. And I'm a big fan of the bison just because it's really rich in iron, which is great for runners. Have you had Sam Adams 26.2 brew in Boston? So the only beers that are in my fridge in my parents' house are Sam Adams. And, of course, it's around Boston time. That's the only beer that's uh, Boston Marathon time. That's the only beer that's in our fridge. <laughs> I've never had this beer. We'll I think I'm it. missing out. We'll have it tonight. Okay. <laughs> um, Elise, what's your favorite indulgence? Gosh, so many. <laughs> we make a lot of wholesome treats. We have a whole chapter in our book dedicated to wholesome treats. And for people who still have a sweet craving like myself, you can make homemade um, baked goods. I love homemade baked goods. And you can make it with um, ingredients that are real and better for you and less using less refined sugars. And I love baking with almond um, flour and butter. And as sweeteners, I use honey or maple syrup or molasses. Um, but I just love making cookies and muffins and things but making them with real food and real ingredients and especially for my toddler she she loves um mommy's homemade muffins and she's like muffin muffin cookie cookie um and I love giving them to her because they're full of I sneak vegetables into them I sneak um all kinds of good fats into these homemade baked treats and so I can feel good about um giving one to her and watching how much she enjoys it 
Well, I'm hungry. So we're going to go through the Can't Beat Me Smoothie, one of Shalane's favorite recipes in Run Fast, Eat Slow. Um, so what was the inspiration behind this recipe, Shalane? So beets are notoriously um, good for runners. And I said to Elise, you know, we got to figure out a way that I can consume beets in the morning before I train. And it certainly does not seem very appetizing to eat like a beet salad as you head out for a run. Runners love smoothies. smoothies. I love smoothies. And so this is a sneaky little way uh, to get in the beets before I get my run in. So we're going to start by adding one one cooked beet to the blender. And it's probably best to cook these before you do them, right? Yes. We prefer to cook our beets. Uh, it just makes them a little bit easier to digest. But if you're into eating raw foods or um, you want to preserve the nutrients in the beet more, then you can leave it raw if you have a high-speed blender. So we have the beets and we have about a cup of uh, blueberries. It could be fresh blueberries or frozen. Um, we're going to add... One small frozen banana, and it's best if the banana's frozen because then it just gives the smoothie a better consistency. And we have a cup of almond milk. A lot of runners have um, usually kind of have some digestion problem with um, lactose. So we, just to be on the safe side, we use almond milk a lot. And then we're going to add one cup of coconut water. Um, coconut water is great because it's really high in electrolytes, so before a run... It's going to be really hydrating. And then we have um, our ginger, so like a knob of ginger. Some people like it really kind of gingery and spicy, and others not so much so, depending upon what you like. Also, it's great for digestion. So when you're running a lot of miles, um, your, ox- the, your blood is flowing out of your digestive system into your muscles. Um, your body's working so hard just to power your muscles, so your digestive system may not be operating um, optimally, and ginger is great for stimulating digestion. I love nuts. So we have a tablespoon of almond butter. Uh, A lot of vitamins are fat-soluble, meaning that your body can't absorb them properly without consuming them in in conjunction with a good amount of fat. All right, right. should we uh, start her up? Make sure that lid's on there. (laughs) You want to taste it, Heather? Yeah. All right, first taste. I like beet salad. I've never drank my beets before, though. That's a very pretty color. Very vibrant. Wow. That's, that's really good. Will this help me Monday morning? You're going to run great. a PR. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. That was Heather Mayer Irvin with Shalane Flanagan and Elise Kopecky. And just so that you know, when Shalane says that beets are notoriously good for runners, she means that they contain antioxidants that help reduce inflammation, lower blood pressure, and increase endurance. It sounds like something I should eat, but I do not like beets. I really don't. But notoriously good. Maybe I'll give them another try. And, you know, the ginger, the ginger would help, right? Disguise the beet flavor. All right, I'm in. Run Fast, Eat Slow is published by Rodale, the parent company of Runner's World. You can find plenty of the recipes in the book, like the Can't Beat Me smoothie, the bison meatballs with marinara sauce, and, man, this sounds good, pecan butter chocolate truffles with sea salt in the September issue of Runner's World. You can also order a copy of the book for yourself at runnersworld.com audio. Okay, and now it's time for The Kick. Here is Heather Mayer-Irvin again with Brian Dalek. 
Alrighty, on the kick this week, I'm joined by Heather Mayer Irvin. She's our nutrition editor. We've heard her on the show before, but I wanted to bring her down for the kick specifically because you took part in a race this past weekend that I've always wanted to do. Tell us what it was. So I was in New York for the Fifth Ave Mile. It's one of my favorite races. It's over quickly, and you run down Fifth Avenue in New York City. So how many times have you done it, if it's one of your favorites? I think this was my fifth or sixth year doing it. And how did it go for you? It went really well. I ran a best of 537, nice. which was, thank you, yeah. it was unexpected, which okay. is always fun. So what makes this a race that people, like, really crave to do? We've done some stories on it before, and I've always wanted to do it, but what, what makes it a unique race? Well, it's really short. Yeah, which, it's a mile. <laughs> it's a mile, which if you do it right, it hurts. <laughs> but you close down Fifth Avenue in New York City, and for those of you who don't know, that's a big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. Fifth Ave is filled with cars. It hugs Central Park. And all morning up until the elites race in the afternoon, it's it, it's for runners. And mm-hmm. it, it's a really fun event. And it, it starts where on Fifth Avenue? It starts 80th and 5th, which is right in front of the Met. Okay. And it goes through six, uh, down to 60th. So it's 20 blocks straight. Yeah, and they have a lot of heats. There's like a media heat and just open divisions, masters, and everything under the sun and then as they cap it off with the elites and there were a crazy amount of good runners doing it this year i think five medalists from the past couple olympics were there and the women's race was specifically interesting yeah jenny simpson won again coming off of a bronze medal in the olympics in the 1500 this is going to be her last race of the year she went all out and won, but it was it was a photo finish pretty much at the end. It was a really close race. She ran in four eighteen three and beat out Laura Muir, you know, at the line, who's had a great year as well. Yeah, she was a fifteen hundred meter Diamond League champion from Great Britain. So yeah, that was expected to be the close finish, and it really turned out. Seventeen women actually broke four thirty in that race. So just a super fast field. And on the men's side, uh, Matthew Centrowitz, who if you remember from the Olympics, he won the gold in the 1500, kind of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So he was expected to be the favorite. And he was leading toward the final stretch. He was holding off um, Colby Alexander on his left, but he didn't realize his teammate on the right, Eric Jenkins, uh, in his first road mile ever, sneaking up. And he, he won by a tenth of a second as well. Jenkins won in 349.4. So again, just super fast. Um, yeah, the mile, I, I need to get out and do like a big mile like this. You would recommend one, right? I'd recommend it. And it's better than on the track where it's just <laughs> right. circle just, after just circle. circle. Yeah, if you're interested in finding a mile near you, a good website, bringbackthemile.com. Just check out their calendar and you can find one maybe in your neck of the woods sometime. Moving on, another story we put up this week. Um, It's going to get hot again this weekend. Mm. Like, we haven't escaped summer quite yet, so you're still going to be perspiring. You get that that white stuff on your face. Um, So we put up a story on, like, how much sodium you really need. What's kind of the takeaway from that story, you being our nutrition editor (laughs) and all? So this researcher looked at a bunch of papers. He didn't conduct his own study yet. And what he found was when runners have salty sweat, Mm -hmm. meaning they have that white, crusty residual, Mm -hmm. it it might be an indicator that they're actually sweating excess sodium. And what we've always told runners is if you see that sweat, 
that white sweat to replenish your sodium even more than you would otherwise. Okay. And what this researcher found was that might not be the case. And because, you know, the Western diet is riddled with salt, you like, might actually- Like my diet. Like your <laughs> <laughs> You might actually not need to increase your sodium intake. We don't know. It's one of those things where, you know, this was observed and we need more research, but it's just something- to consider, you know, we don't want you to go away and say, all right, I'm not having any salt. I don't need it. Don't do that. Uh, you can always talk to a dietitian, to your doctor. But uh, it was just an interesting bit of research given the state of salt and running. So I mentioned I'm a salty snack guy. Love my pretzels. What What's the recommended daily intake I should have of sodium anyway? So for healthy adults, it's recommended that you have 2,000 to 2,300 milligrams of sodium a day. Mm -hmm. The best way to figure out how much you're consuming is by reading the labels and knowing that sodium is added to a lot of things. And you really shouldn't add your own salt. That being said, athletes might need a little bit more, but it's one of those things. Eat a balanced diet, read the labels, and talk to your doctor or dietitian if you have questions. Okay, so the final thing for this week, Heather, you did the Fifth Avenue Mile. I did a local 10K. Sadly, neither of us won that race. I don't think we were expected to. But if you ever won a race of, like, any distance, what do you think would be the first thing you would do? I should probably call my husband, but I would actually probably call my mom first. Well, you, you're pretty much on the same wavelength as Jolie Jorgensen. She won the Desert News Classic Marathon in Salt Lake City in July, and she comes across the finish line in 32343, the local paper. They want to talk to her, but she says, wait, first thing I have to do is call my husband. But uh, on the other end, Adam um, totally does not buy the story. He, he, did, he didn't believe she won the race. Why didn't he believe her? <laughs> well, he, he has like kind of a good fallback, but it doesn't quite pan out. He was at the finish line, just the wrong one. So there was a 5K, a 10K, and a half marathon going on at the same time. He and his group of supporters were at the wrong finish line. And the, the clock didn't give any indication that, <laughs> hey, this is probably not a marathon finish. You're, you're not helping him out. Sorry, it's, Adam. It's, but the uh, other thing is, you know, Julie will tell you she's not a pro. Um, she got fifth in this race last year. But in 2009, her first marathon was a 519. She did that on no training, didn't really know what she was getting into. But since then, after two kids has built up her mileage to like 50 to 70 miles per week, mostly on the treadmill. And she's brought that time down like almost two hours. She's a sub 320 marathoner now. So just a great accomplishment to come down from that. And then she, out of nowhere, gets her first marathon victory at this local race. That's amazing. But I have to say my favorite part of this story is her mid-race snack. Mm -hmm. She had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich tucked into her sports bra, which I don't think I could do, but that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could get away with that in the back of my shorts pockets on a long run. I don't think run. you'd want to. But, you know, post-run, PB&J all the way. All the way. That's a re regular lunch for me. <laughs> well, Heather, congrats on your race this weekend. Thanks for coming down and uh, doing the kick with us. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to everyone who's been leaving those ratings and reviews for us. We love hearing from our listeners and continuing to try to make the show better. I'm Runner's World Editor-in-Chief David Willing. This show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. The Runner's World Show is part of the Panoply Network. Be sure to join us next week for my interview with comedian and marathoner Liz Mealy. 
But that's what I do in my free time. I run. I, uh, I run a lot. I, uh, I run marathons, which is not bragging because I'm not good at them. I am currently still finishing the last one. <laughs> you won't want to miss it. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>